lecture notes, what must I do, Kant's ethics. In the last module, you learned about Kant's epistemology and philosophy of religion. In this module, we'll be discussing Kant's ethical theory and then moving on to consider a contrasting ethical theory, utilitarianism. Let's start with an example. In one of Kant's books on ethics, he imagines a shopkeeper that charges his customers fair and honest prices. Now, when you go to the store to buy something, the items you pick out have a barcode and you take the items to the front of the store where they're scanned. But of course, when Kant was living, there were no barcodes. If Kant wanted to buy something from a shop in Konigsberg, that's the city where he lived, he would have had to ask the shopkeeper for the price. This sets up a potential problem. What's to stop the shopkeeper from lying and raising the price when it's a stranger or someone they dislike while charging fair prices to their friends and well-known people throughout town? So Kant in this example imagines a shopkeeper who's extremely fair and honest in their pricing. They charge each person the same price, never taking advantage of children and strangers. The key question for our purposes, however, is the shopkeeper's motive. Why does this shopkeeper charge fair prices? Because it's good for business. Although, you know, there were no Google reviews when Kant was writing, a shopkeeper could still gain a reputation as an honest and fair person or a manipulative crook whose business you shouldn't patronize. And guess what? Having a reputation as an honest and fair business person is good for business. So this shopkeeper charges fair prices because it will help them earn more money in the long run. Kant uses this prudent shopkeeper to set up a distinction between acting in accord with duty versus acting from duty. Okay, so does the shopkeeper act in accordance with duty? Yes, what he does is honest. But does the shopkeeper act from duty? No, he does what's honest and fair, but he does it in order to make a profit. Thus, acting in accordance with duty equals the action I do is in keeping with morality. On the other hand, acting from duty equals my motives are uniquely moral. I act from the motive of duty. Accordance with duty refers simply to the action. From duty <laughs> from duty refers to one's motive. In fact, I always advise my students that when they hear or read, quote, from duty, end quote, they should substitute in from a motive of duty to remind them that acting from duty is about one's motives. Some examples of this are as follows. Example one, giving money to charity, but giving it in order to get a tax break. This is in accordance with duty, but not done from duty. Example two, giving money to charity because it's the right thing to do. This is in accordance with and from duty. Or three, embezzling money from a charity in order to remodel your home. This is not in accordance with duty or from duty. So why should you care about this distinction? We should care about this distinction because on Kant's view, Ethics isn't just about doing actions that bring about good outcomes or good purposes. Ethics is also about your motivations. In particular, Kant writes, an action that is done from duty doesn't get its moral value from the purpose, 
which means outcome. So it doesn't get its moral value from the outcome that's to be achieved through it, but from the maxim that it involves, giving the reason why the person acts thus. This is from the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, and there's a link to um, an online translation in the lecture notes. So your purpose is the outcome or what your action brings about. Kant is telling us here that moral worth does not come from purpose. Moral worth does not come from the aim of your action or the thing you're trying to bring about. Rather, actions done from duty get their moral worth from their maxim. But what on earth is a maxim? How exactly to understand Kant's idea of a maxim is something scholars debate. What we know for sure is that a maxim is a principle of action. The collection of all of your maxims put together is kind of like your playbook for action. Maxims are sort of like mini laws that describe how to act in different types of situations. For our purposes, it will be enough to know that your maxims capture, one, the type of action you're doing, like what you are doing, but also why you are doing it. So, for example, say that I am driving to work and I see someone waving for help on the side of the road. I pull over, I let them use my phone to call for help. In this scenario, I might have had the maxim, when I see someone in distress or in need of help, I will offer help because that is what good people will do. Or maybe I have a different maxim. Maybe if I'm driving by myself in a rural area, I don't feel comfortable stopping to help strangers as a woman if there aren't other cars or people nearby. So if I refused to stop out of fear for myself, my maxim would instead be something like, when I am in an isolated area by myself, I will not stop and engage with a stranger in order to help them because I do not want to be harmed. So your maxims describe both your action and why you're doing the action. This should already remind you of the distinction between acting from duty and acting in accordance with duty that we talked about just above. You'll notice in Kant's moral philosophy that there's always a two-part pairing of what you do and why you do it. Hopefully you can see why maxims matter, morally speaking. What you do is important and why you do it is important. Still, there's a problem. How do we sort out the good maxims from the bad maxims? Can we give a principled reason for saying that one maxim is good and another maxim bad? Thus far, I've been working with a very intuitive sense of which maxims are bad and which are good. It's bad to give money to charity just to benefit yourself. It's good to do that because it's morally good. But this isn't very helpful to us. We want a moral theory that can take us beyond mere intuition and help us sort out difficult cases or cases that aren't clear, cases where we're not sure what to do. So can we give a systematic or principled account of how to distinguish good maxims from bad maxims? In order to do this, we need to take a detour into the idea of a categorical imperative. Since for Kant, the moral law, and the moral law is going to tell us which maxims are good and which maxims are bad, takes the form of a categorical imperative. All right, first things first. What's an imperative? An imperative is a command. Some commands are hypothetical or conditional. This means they depend on you having certain ends or goals. So for example, if you want to pass this class, complete all of the assignments is a hypothetical or conditional command. If I go home and see my neighbor buttons in the driveway or her driveway and yell to her, hey, 
buttons, make sure you're studying for the unit three exam and make sure you get your quiz on time, she's going to look at me with confusion and maybe even annoyance because this command to study doesn't apply to buttons. Why not? Because she's not a student in my class. She doesn't have the goal of passing this class. You, however, do have the goal of passing this class, or at least I assume you do, because if you didn't, you wouldn't be here right now. And because you have that goal or that end, the hypothetical command study for the exam does apply to you. On the other side, other commands are categorical or absolute. For example, don't commit murder. Don't torture innocent people. Categorical or absolute commands don't depend on your ends or goals. If I say to you, proofread your essay, and you reply, oh, I'm just here for fun. I actually don't care about passing this class. Then that command no longer applies to you. Thus, proofread your essay is again a hypothetical command. But categorical commands aren't like this. <laughs> you can't get out of categorical commands by saying that you don't have certain ends or goals. By way of analogy, categorical commands are sort of like laws. Take, for instance, traffic laws. If you are pulled over for speeding, it won't do you any good to say to the officer, yes, but officer, see, I don't care about getting fines or following traffic laws. Like, I, I don't have the goal of avoiding tickets. So this command doesn't apply to me. No, <laughs> traffic laws apply to you whether you have the relevant goals or not. So too with morality. You can't just commit murder regardless of your ends or goals. Like maybe there's someone who doesn't have the goal of being a good person, or maybe there's someone who doesn't have the goal of avoiding time in prison. Still, the moral command, do not murder, applies to these people just the same. And if they do commit murder, they're breaking a command. It's not that they're doing something that's not wrong, that the command doesn't apply to them and it does apply to the rest of us. No, the command still applies to them. And if they do commit murder, they are breaking it. In other words, for Kant, morality is categorical and absolute. This is another way of saying that morality has the form of a law. Now, I immediately have to give a caveat. When I say the form of a law, I am not saying that morality just is another law from the government. The key word here is form. Kant thinks that moral commands have the form or structure of a law. That just means they're categorical. Moral laws apply to you regardless of your goals, your ends. And this is the point at which I think Kant is most brilliant and exciting. He thinks we can get ethics from the idea of a law, from the very form of a law. In other words, he thinks that once we know that ethics comes to us in the form of a moral law, we already know enough to figure out what that moral law tells us to do. Okay, so we know that morality has a form of a law. Furthermore, Kant thinks there is one big overarching moral law. That's the categorical imperative, capital C categorical, capital I imperative. And from this big general principle, we're supposed to be able to get more specific moral instructions. But how is that going to work? Well, one problem is that Kant formulates the categorical imperative in several different ways. He gives four different formulations. And each different formulation is help, 
uh, is supposed to help us figure out particular moral laws and tell us how to live. Kant himself thinks that all of his different formulations are really ultimately equivalent, that they're really ultimately saying the same thing. How this works is not at all clear, but happily, we're not going to worry about that. Okay, so Kant gives four different formulas, four different interpretations of the categorical imperative, which again is this overarching ultimate moral law. Um, they are formula of universal law, formula of humanity, formula of autonomy, and formula of the kingdom of ends. We are going to focus only on the first two, the formula of universal law and the formula of humanity. Note that the formulas are sometimes called principles or formulations. So you might see me or like the textbook or a different text refer to, quote, the principle of universal law, unquote. But that's the exact same thing as the formula of universal law. Okay, on that note, let's turn to the formula of universal law. Different translations of Kant's moral texts uh, translate this formula a little different. But the basic idea is as follows. Act as though the maxim of your action were to become through your will a universal law of nature. Okay, that's a pretty complicated claim. <laughs> so don't worry, I am going to walk you through it in these lecture notes. Before I complicate things, however, I want you to know this. The key idea behind the formula, formula of universal law is morality requires that you do not make exceptions for yourself. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Morality requires that you don't make an exception for yourself. So if you start to get especially confused, just remind yourself of this. Come back to that point. That's going to be your orienting point here. Now let's unpack in a little bit uh, more detail by looking at an example. So imagine that I am late on paying my phone bill, but I spent all my money on toys for my cats. So I'm thinking of asking my sister for money to pay my phone bill. And I know she's only going to loan me the money if I pay it back, but I don't want to pay it back. I want to use the money, the money for other stuff. In this case, would it be morally permissible for me to make a lying promise, like aka tell my sister a lie, give tell her a promise that I don't intend to keep? So in order for me to figure out whether this action would be permissible according to the formula of universal law, we're going to follow these three um, like steps. These are steps that I have made up, by the way. They don't directly come from Kant, but this is how we're going to apply the formula of universal law. So step one, formulate the maxim on which you would be acting. Step two, imagine a world in which everyone adopted this maxim. Step three, ask yourself, could I rationally will this world, which is another way of asking, could I rationally will this maxim to be universal law? So I'm going to have us apply these three steps to my example of making a lying promise to my sister. Hopefully you can formulate the maxim and I will pause to let you try to formulate the maxim, but I'll help out with the second and third steps. And my secret hint is remember that a maxim says what you do and why you do it. So what's my maxim when I make a sister to my promise that I don't intend to keep? Okay, so I think that in this case, my maxim is something like lie in order to get the money that I need, right? There's different ways to word the maxim, but something roughly like that. I'm telling a lie and my reason for doing it is to get the money that I need or to get me out of a tight spot. So step two, remember, was imagine a world in which everyone adopted this maxim. So uh, application of step two for this particular example would be 
Imagine that everyone in the world makes a false promise when they're in trouble and need some money or just in trouble and need to get out of a tight spot. Now, step three, remember, was to ask if I could rationally will this world. This is the trickiest part and the most important part. Okay, so imagine a world in which every time someone's in a tight spot, they need money or other, some other kind of tight spot, they tell a lie, they make a false promise. In that world, if someone comes to you and says, hey, can I borrow 20 bucks? I really need it to get gas or to like, uh, you know, pay my phone bill. But I, I promise I'm going to pay it back to you next week. I promise for sure. Okay. But we're in this world where everyone has the ma maxim, tell a lie when you need money. Are you going to believe this person? No, of course not. Because in a world where this maxim to tell a lie when you need money, if that maxim is the universal law, all promises will be considered suspicious and no one will believe you when you make a promise. So to go back to the case of me and my sister, if we're living in the world where everyone has this maxim, tell a lie when you need money, my sister will not believe me when I make her this promise. So in other words, in this world, my action wouldn't even work. My maxim would be unsuccessful because my sister would not believe my promise and she wouldn't even give me the money I was trying to get with my action. Therefore, says Kant, I could not rationally will this maxim to be universal law. Worded another way, I could only will this maxim if I was willing myself to be an exception because lying only works, lying's only successful when you get someone to believe you. So that means lying only works in a context where most people most of the time are telling the truth. And so promises are generally believed. In short, Kant says, no, you can't rationally will this maxim as universal law because if you were willing this, you would be willing a contradiction. You would be willing one thing for you and another thing for everyone else. Unfortunately, this formulation of Kant's categorical imperative turns out not to work as well as Kant hoped. For instance, we can universalize without contradiction a number of maxims that intuitively seem morally wrong. There is no logical contradiction in willing the maxim I will kill anyone who walks on my lawn in order to maintain a perfect yard as a universal law. We can imagine a world in which everyone has this maxim and it would be possible for me to will this maxim. It would still be successful in that world. Now, to be clear, we may not want to live in a world in which this is universal law. In fact, I definitely do not want to live in that world. We may not want the consequences, right? That would be a world with bad consequences. But Kant doesn't think about moral philosophy in terms of what we want or bad consequences. Kant is after a logical contradiction with his formula of universal law. He wants to harness your own reason and say, you can't will this action because it creates a contradiction within your own reason. Your own reason will tell you it doesn't work. It's impossible or impossible in a, in a moral or rational sense. So one problem is that the universal law formulation fails to rule out actions that should be ruled out as wrong. Another problem is that it fails to uphold moral duties that seem intuitively to exist. For instance, what about the duty to help others? Kant claims that it is impossible to will to never help others because inevitably you will yourself need help. And so if you will to never help other people, he thinks you're willing a contradiction because you will eventually need help. 
I think this is plausible for most people, but it is logically possible to be someone who's never, who's, who's willing to never have help from others and thus never give it in return. A few rare people really are hermits who ask for nothing from other people. So I think it seems like a stretch to say that it creates a, quote, rational contradiction, unquote, to will to never help others and never receive help in return. All right. This doesn't necessarily mean that Kant's universal law formula is a total waste. As I said earlier, the heart of the universal law formula is the idea that morality does not allow you to make an exception of yourself. So you should not will that other people help you and then help no one yourself. You should not will that other people are honest to you and then turn around yourself and lie and falsely promise. You should not will that other people treat you fairly, but then treat others unfairly yourself, and so on and so forth. And although this point isn't quite as far-reaching as Kant maybe intended the universal law formulation to be, this nonetheless seems to capture something really important about morality, that we should not will one thing for ourselves and something else for others. Even if that doesn't generate a full-blown rational contradiction like Kant was looking for, it does seem to be true that we should not make exceptions for ourselves. The formula of humanity. Now I want to turn to Kant's second formulation of his categorical imperative, the formula of humanity, which states, act in such a way as to treat humanity, whether in your own person or in that of anyone else, always as an end and never merely as a means. Okay, so let's unpack this. What does he mean by humanity? Humanity for Kant is taken to mean something like rational and autonomous beings. Autonomy means roughly self-governing, or in more down-to-earth terms, it refers to your ability and right to decide for yourself. Regardless of exactly how we define humanity, Kant thinks human persons have a special kind of worth and deserve respect as a result. In particular, Kant claims that human beings have, quote, dignity and not price, end quote, which means that our value and worth cannot be quantified. Your value is not the kind of thing that we can capture or summarize with a dollar symbol and a number. Our special human worth means that we are owed a certain kind of treatment, morally speaking. The treatment we deserve is best summarized by the word respect. Although the formula of humanity is about our obligation to treat others with respect, the actual formula refers to, quote, treating someone as an end, end quote. What does this mean? To treat someone as an end simply means to treat someone as having value in their own right. Something valuable as an end is not valuable as a means, which would be valuable only insofar as it or they are valuable to you, but something that's valuable as an end has value independently in its own right. If this sounds familiar, you might be thinking of the distinction between intrinsic and instrumental value. So remember, some things are valuable in their own right as ends. This value is intrinsic. If you've ever met a newborn baby, for instance, you may in that moment have been struck by their intrinsic value. On the other hand, other things are valuable as means or valuable instrumentally. The pen sitting on my desk by me right now is instrumentally valuable. 
It is valuable to me in helping me to write things down on paper. But when the pen loses ink and stops being useful for accomplishing this goal of writing stuff down, I will throw it away. It will have lost all of its value. The point of the formula of humanity is that we're supposed to treat other people as though they have intrinsic value, to treat them with respect. We should not treat other people as means, which means to treat them like they only have value so long as they're useful to us. But here's a puzzle. We treat people as means all the time. Here are some examples. When you go to the grocery store, your cashier is a means to you purchasing grocery. When you take this class, I am a means to you getting a grade. And on the flip side, when I teach this class, you are a means to me getting paid. When you go out to eat, the waitstaff are a means for you getting your food, so on and so forth. Now, all of these things seem perfectly morally permissible. Surely there is nothing wrong with buying groceries, taking a class, teaching a class, or going out to eat, right? The key to this puzzle lies in the distinction between means versus mere means. Consider the example of a shovel. A shovel is only valuable to me insofar as it is good at digging. If the shovel rusts or it breaks, it ceases to be valuable. I will throw it in the trash can. A cashier, on the other hand, yes, is useful and valuable to me because they help me purchase my groceries. But I can value the cashier as a means to buying groceries and simultaneously value the cashier as a human being with worth in their own right. Furthermore, even if something goes wrong, like the cashier starts puking all over my groceries instead of scanning them and letting me purchase them and leave, I am still obliged to respect the cashier and view them as an end in themselves. They have value in their own right, not just as a means to me purchasing groceries. So to summarize, mere means means someone or something is only valuable insofar as they help you get what you want, whereas a means is compatible with saying they're useful because they help me get what I want and simultaneously recognizing that the per person has moral, val moral worth in their own right and you accordingly treat them with respect. So the formula of humanity says we may treat someone as a means, but if we're treating someone as a means, it can't be as a mere means. We have to simultaneously <laughs> recognize their intrinsic value, treat them as an end in their, end in their own right. In other words, treat them with respect.